Hi, this is uh, Will and Samuel. We are here to talk about the second transcendental, which is morality or uh, goodness. Um, so let's get started. A transcendental, just to review what they are, a transcendental are one things that go beyond reality. They're, they're above just what is here on earth. Okay, so why are we going over them? Uh, because this is what we are created for. And in the three, we have truth, which we went over last time, um, morality and beauty. Morality and beauty are sometimes called goodness and unity, but we are arguing or kind of explaining that these are different ways to view God and that classically Christians have used these in very fantastic ways, but today we've kind of forgot about them. We're going to start with a quote before we get into morality or goodness. It's from Dostoevsky, and he writes, Without God, all things are permissible. And the idea he's getting at is that we actually do need a God or an ultimate justice system or an ultimate standard for right and wrong to actually exist or for even obligation to actually exist. And so Dostoevsky was one of those writers that really pushed for this idea of right and wrong in an objective standard that is God. The first point is moral values. We really have to understand what moral values are before we get into talking about goodness or, or anything like that because these are really foundational terms. So there's three ways to view these moral values. One is absolute moral values. So that would provide people with a reference point. So some unchanging standard that we can compare people's actions or, or minds to and say, hey, you're doing something wrong. Um, now, the thing about absolute moral values is it does not consider the situation. It would just say something like killing is wrong and it would be killing is wrong in any situation. So if you were defending yourself and you killed the person that was trying to attack you, it would say that is wrong. It would not be sensitive to the situation. Now, objective moral values would also provide a good reference point. It would be uh, literally an objective standard. So something we could point to and uh, reference to compare actions to see if what we're doing is right or wrong. Now, the only difference between this and absolute moral values is that objective moral values considers the situation. So it would be saying like, hey, if you're defending yourself in this situation and it ended up in the other person dying, that'd, that'd be okay. But if you cold, like commit a cold-blooded murder, that would be wrong, okay? Um, and then the last one is subjective. Uh, we talked about it a little bit with truth, but it, it would kind of be the same idea here. So it'd be the morals instead of truth grounded in the subject or the person, okay? And one thing we would like to point out for this is uh, it would just be an opinion, basically. So each person would have their own standard. So we would actually have no grounds to punish people. So if I did something wrong and you said, hey, you did something wrong, I could say, hey, um, not according to my um, subjective standard of moral values, according to yours maybe, but not mine. So if we were actually to punish people, we would just eventually have to say my subjective moral values are better than your subjective moral values. Okay, so next we're going to cover um, some of the different models that we have for accounting for morality kind of on offer. Uh, we would say that there's kind of four main uh, groups that we can think of that we think are worth covering here. Uh, ways that we account for morality in the world. The first would be uh, naturalism. So how would a naturalist account for morality in the world? 
Naturalism is saying that all that there is is nature, just matter in motion. There is no supernatural reality, no God or gods or anything like that. Um, and they would appeal to things like whatever helps humans flourish. So whatever is good for humanity, uh, whatever causes pleasure and reduces pain, stuff like that. Those are different ways that a naturalist might account for morality or whatever is best for society, whatever is best for the most amount of people. Those are different ways um, to account for it. Uh, explanatorily, they would appeal to uh, evolution. They would say that we've just evolved and our, our morality has just kind of evolved. Um, Whatever is passed on um, from you know, lower species to higher species um, is what we should follow. So it's kind of the survival of the fittest idea. And an interesting thing to point out from that would be how, how do things like self-sacrifice, um, what we often think of as good, virtuous things, like sacrificing yourself, like a soldier jumping on a grenade, how does that fit in with that idea of survival of the fittest? That's kind of an evolutionary way of thinking, a really dumb thing to do, self-sacrifice. But we look up to it as a good thing. So just an interesting thing to keep in mind. And then the idea of can atheists be good? So the claim is not that uh, atheists can't do moral things. They can and do a lot. They do moral things. Um, they follow laws, things like that. But the claim is that they don't have a way for accounting for morality or accounting for why they do what they do given naturalism. They don't have any reason to do it. And so, um, or no objective reason to do it. Next would be theism. So this would say that God is the good. He is the standard for what right and wrong is. And he provides, um, given that he is the standard, we can judge not only based off of his nature, but also based off the commands that he gives us and the, and the um, instruction he gives us in scripture, we can base um, what is right and wrong off of that. So he's the, he's the who says, we can answer what God says. And this is objective, meaning whatever we agree or disagree on it, the truth of the matter still exists. Um, the next one would be what we call Platonism. So this is the idea that there's actually an objective external standard to God, and there are moral truths that exist independently of him. So like goodness or justice or peace, different virtues like this actually exist independently of God. And um, we, the problem with this is how do we gain access to these things? Or how, how do we come to have any sort of awareness or access to these um, moral virtues that are exist and exist externally to God. And then the last would be nihilism, which is the idea that really nothing has meaning at all. Uh, there is no morality and our actions don't make any difference, whatever we do. And so maybe hedonism is the right response to that. We might as well just live it up. Okay, so the next big idea is what we call natural law. So this is um, a biblical idea, but also a philosophical idea as well. And this would say that uh, our morality is informed by our nature or our essence. So another way of saying it is um, we, what is good for us is determined by what we are. So if I'm a tree, what's good for me is to grow and uh, take deep roots into the ground and grow tall and grow leaves and grow fruit, etc. And what so what is good for a tree is based off of what a tree is, what it essentially is, what it's made to do. Um, and so these ideas of a telos, telos, um, what's the end goal of a thing? What was it made for? What's the function of a thing? Um, and this would apply to basically everything in the world, um, but it can be very helpful to think about it in terms of like sexual ethics. We think about the organs involved in sexual ethics. Um, what were they made for? They clearly seem to have a function or a design or a purpose to them. So what is good for those things 
is determined by what they were made to do, what they were made for. So we see that this idea of natural law kind of presupposes design. Um, it presupposes that there is an actual intention behind the things that are made um, in the world, and they actually have a purpose, um, something that they're made for. Um, and then kind of biblically speaking, the idea of natural law comes in a little bit um, in Romans 2, where Paul appeals to uh, the law of God written on the hearts of mankind, um, even like Gentiles who have the law written on their hearts, and so they do what is good by nature. That kind of idea of natural law, it's kind of commonsensical. Um, and then John 1.9 is the idea of kind of we all have this light within us. Um, so John 1.9 says that uh, Christ coming into the world illumines every man. Um, so the idea of everybody kind of has this light, uh, this inner light, because we're made in the image of God, and then we, that's our kind of our conscience, and we follow that. All right, we're going to get into something called divine command theory. So after learning about uh, like natural law and ways of accounting for morality and everything like that, um, the Christian in in our system, not only do we have to account for like, hey, what is good, what is objectively good, but it's also how can we account for obligation? Like, okay, there is this good thing, this virtue. Why should we follow it? Why are we obligated to follow it? Um, and so we would say it's divine command theory. So God in his position and us and ours as the creature, him as the creator, he gives us commands and that is an obligation, right? That we are obligated just because of our position and the fact that we have been given a command. And we could even go as far to say that natural law in itself is a standard and something that uh, uh, like makes us obligated to do the good based on how we were designed. Okay, and so this would uh, this would actually bring up like the Euthyphro problem. Uh, that's that's something Christians or even deists or theists have had to deal with. Euthyphro basically asks, okay, what makes something good? Is it good? Is it because God says it, or does God say it because it's good? Uh, like, how does that work? The Christian would simply respond with, God is goodness. So every command He gives is good just because He is good in His nature. So God isn't sitting there like choosing what is right and what is wrong uh, arbitrarily. It's in his nature, part of who he is. Um, and so he can't command uh, an evil thing. Okay, um, and just a couple verses uh, for, for God's nature and arbitrary commands. Uh, you can look at Malachi 3, 6. God is unchanging. He, he stays the same. He won't like change or give random commands to us. Because uh, a lot of people would say, like, okay, divine command theory, couldn't God command us to then kill people um, or, like, rape someone? Okay, uh, no, because he is unchanging and his nature is unchanging. He wouldn't do that based on his nature and what he has revealed to us. And then where, where are the biblical grounds for divine command theory? You could uh, look towards Psalm 25.8, which is saying uh, God is holy, so he's instructing sinners um, and how does he instruct us it would be through his commands through his revelation okay law of god since we're talking about morality we do actually have to talk about the biblical law and what uh what it is and how it works and so it's basically split up into three different sections the first section is the ceremonial law. So that would be like sacrifices and how they're done. It would, it would be a very religious part of the law. Now, 
In the New Testament, that is fulfilled through Jesus, so Christians today are not obligated to follow that. The judicial law would be how, what laws did Israel make at that specific time? As a country or whatever, whoever was the king, so like King David, what laws did he make? That would be the judicial law just for that country and civilization. Uh, so we would also not have to follow those. The only one we're bound to is the moral law. That's the unchanging, eternal, transcendent that we've been talking about this whole time. And so that's what, that, that's what we would follow, and that's one of the laws in the Bible. Next, we're going to talk about what is evil, because I think this is an important thing to, to get right uh, before we even... Um, before we just stop talking about goodness and morality and stuff, we should really address what evil is. A lot of people think that evil is something that God created. So they'll say evil exists in the world, therefore uh, God must have created it, therefore he isn't good. Um, but that, I think, is a misunderstanding of what evil is. So classically Christians think of evil as a privation of good. We think of it as a lack of where something good should be. Uh, so it actually doesn't have an ontological existence to it. it. It doesn't actually exist. It's, it's, um, it's real to our senses, um, but it's actually, strictly speaking, non-being. And so some analogies for this to help understand this kind of weird phenomenon would be like heat and cold. We would say that heat is really like lots of particles are in the air and it's actually hot and there's lots of energy. And then cold is really the absence of that. It's really just the lack of heat. But there's actually not anything there. It's the lack of the thing that makes it actually cold. The same thing with light and dark. Um, dark is real to our senses. Like it, when it's dark out, we really perceive it, but it's actually just an absence of light. It doesn't actually exist. And so if evil is not some like um, blob of stuff that God had to make. Um, it's a lack of a good thing. You can also think of it as being uh, a corruption of good or parasitic. So the idea of rust on a car um, rust doesn't exist without the car, right? Um, so good doesn't need evil, but evil needs good to exist. We're going to just slightly touch on, on virtue ethics because, again, this is just a summary of all these things under uh, the transcendental of morality. There's a, there's a lot of topics, and, again, we aren't going to get super in-depth, in but it's just, hey, here's an idea for you to think about. Um, it's, it's virtues and vices. We don't really talk like this anymore, but there's a lot of usefulness in, in looking into virtues and vices and, and how they work and how they function. So, for example, virtues would be like courage or prudence or chastity. Uh, vices, on the other hand, would be like cowardice or ignorance um, or lust and gluttony. And you, you can think of those just like we talked about evil, which is vices are the privation of virtues. So courage, the absence of courage is cowardice, is where people are not being courageous or brave. Um, so it's, it's a good way to think about the moral structure and how we apply it to our lives and our actions and our thoughts. Um, and it's something we've really forgotten. And then just some biblical themes that relate to this whole topic of morality and goodness. Um, one would be the promise in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel, it talks about this, of of God giving us a new heart or writing the law of God on our hearts so that we would obey him. And that's really what happens when we're regenerated as Christians. When God births us anew, when we experience the new birth, we are experiencing a change of heart, a change of our desires and our affections. We love 
different things now. We no longer love our sin, but we hate it. We actually love the things of God, and so that's a wonderful promise to, to dwell on. Um, and the Psalms, it talks a ton about having a love for the law. Uh, David talks about how he loves and meditates on the law of God day and night. Um, another aspect of this would be law and gospel. So kind of the whole, uh, whole of Scripture is kind of um, combined. These two realities are kind of mixed through all of Scripture, law and gospel, or um, the idea that there are commands and promises. And so even look at something like the Ten Commandments, it's good as a Christian to think of not only the Ten Commandments as like laws to obey, which they are, but also as promises, meaning I can't on my own fulfill the Ten Commandments, but God, by his grace, will transform me into a person that will um, obey the Ten Commandments. So by faith and by his grace, I can actually become somebody like that who does fulfill um, the law. And so that's what Christians ultimately end up doing. Um, we, by grace, are able to actually fulfill the law. And then the end goal of these things is, is holiness and really heart religion or change of heart um, is the real view of law and, and gospel in the Bible. The moral argument. So just a way to apply this to argue for God's existence. We think it's a, it's a cool thing to do. We did it with truth and that transcendent and uh, we made an argument based off of what truth is. Now we're going to do the same for morality or goodness. So the deductive argument would be pretty simple. It would just say, if objective moral values do exist, then God exists. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Right? And so it's basically arguing like, hey, objective moral values could only exist if there was a God, and they do exist, so there is a God. And then another way you could approach this would be inductively. So inductive uh, argumentation is slightly different than deductive argumentation, but it's more of an inference to the best explanation. So Christianity best explains moral values and our experience of conscience, our experience of guilt and shame after doing certain actions. Um, and we'd say that Christianity or theism gives a good account for that, uh, whereas naturalism doesn't really account for that very well. That's another way you could argue for uh, morality. And that is the end. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.